it's a great day to be alive, isn't it, here, getting up at 26 degrees here on the 27th of March, 2022. I felt for the men at man camp, but boo-hoo, I think they'll be okay, don't you? <laughs> I hope everyone took an extra blankie along, because we don't want them cuddling. Anyhow, uh, we, this, today is a special day, and I want to welcome any of you who are online today, and, and uh, my name is Tom Spiker. I'm one of the pastors here, formerly. Actually, my title for years I gave myself was the former very reverend Tom Spiker, but now I'm just Tom, and uh, I've abandoned that. Anyways, I'm just Tom, and I'm one of the life group leaders, and I help out wherever. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. We have a couple of reasons why it's really special today. One happened yesterday, March 26th. We had a couple in church as their 57th anniversary. And today, March 27th, we have another couple in church who were married on March 27th, 1954. That's 68 years. Yeah, Pete and Becky Dow have the 68 years, and Bob and Ann Brooks have the 57. Give them a surprise. Round of applause. Wow. Tammy's going to have put up with me at 50 this year. We're never going to catch him, are we? No. Nope. Well, anyways, do you realize that's 125 years of marriage between these two couples? If you have any questions about marriage, ask them. They'll help you. Well, Pastor Josh wanted to start a small series today, and it's on the last words of Jesus uh, in context prior to the cross. And mine is the famous prayer of Jesus from John chapter 17. Just to set our thoughts, we often pray before a big event, you know, like say we're going to host something. We pray about that, that we'll do well, that we'll, things will go according to plan, that God will bless it, everyone will turn up and be blessed by the thing. We pray before an interview. We pray before we go into a big project. I know that for the last couple of weeks, I've been praying about this morning that God would use me. And uh, like most days going to work anymore, I pray two things. I pray that God would give me a strong body at age 69 and more importantly, a clear mind. And so far he has. And uh, why do we do this? Well, the reason is we want to get our minds in sync with God. Uh, we want to resolve any areas of unconfessed sin, and we know very well, we pray that God's for presence and enablement, because we know that without that, even if our hearts are right, without God's presence and his divine enablement, we're not going to amount to much or accomplish much. Well, the 17th chapter marks a transition in the ministry of Jesus. It's right before, right after he finishes his instruction and training of his disciples, right before he goes to the cross. It marks the end of that earthly ministry, beginning of what we would call his intercessory ministry for believers, which continues on to this very morning some 2,000 years later. And we hear the Lord's Prayer a lot, uh, talk about, people talk about that in the early, a uh, couple of the Gospels list that. That was actually a pattern that Jesus gave his apostles or his disciples for how to pray. This actually might be correctly named the Lord's Prayer because it's the only completely recorded prayer of Jesus in Scripture. 
It's a very important chapter. And in many ways, this is a summary of John's entire gospel. And we need to see the entire chapter because it's a unit and therefore we're going to need to move kind of quickly. So hang on. And verse one, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now, what words is Jesus referring to when Jesus had spoken these words? He's referring back to John chapter 16. He had a discourse with the disciples. He was telling them in his final words to them before the cross, really, that it was gonna get tough, that the world was gonna hate them. Anyone who killed them thought they'd be doing God a service. Don't worry, he was with them, but he was going away. Where he's going, they couldn't come, so they're confused. And he says he's sending the Holy Spirit who will be with them and in them and guide them into all truth. And at some point in that discussion, they get it. We pick it up at John chapter 16, verse 29. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that, all th- that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you'll be scattered, each to your own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Where do we have peace? In Christ. Start getting that in your head, you're gonna hear that a lot this morning. In me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In uh, 2022 vernacular, we might say that it's go time for Jesus. I mean, his hour had come. What does his hour refer to? And I don't want to make any assumptions this morning. Remember back in the Gospels when he'd heal someone, he would... They would, you know, they'd want to go tell everyone. He says, no, don't tell anyone for my hour. His hour had not yet come. That's to point out that Jesus was on a divine timetable. And Satan was trying to kill him many times before the cross, keep him from that cross, because apart from his work on the cross, redemption could never happen. Salvation of us could never happen. And Satan still had a chance to be victorious as long as he did not go to the cross. But his hour had come. And we pick it up in John chapter 23, John chapter 12, verse 23. He said, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. And drop down to verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And we'll glorify it, glorify it again. Imagine standing there, that voice from heaven. The crowd that stood there thought it thundered. Some said, no, an angel spoke to him. Whatever it was, they knew that something had happened. And Jesus said to them, uh, this voice came, verse 30, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. 
Now the judgment of this is judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This he said to show what kind of death he was going to die. Now to get the imagery there, that's some specific imagery he has. Whoops, I won't leave that there. Tammy doesn't like when I leave a Kleenex hanging out, sorry. Um, Get the imagery there, you have to go back to Numbers chapter 21. It was one of the many accounts in the Old Testament where the people of Israel were disobedient. They were grumbling against Moses, complaining against God. And God said, okay, here's your punishment. I'm sending some fiery serpents among you to bite you. Now for someone who hates snakes like me, that would be an awful punishment. And they, of course, went to Moses. They pleaded, please intercede with God. He did, and God said, okay, fashion a serpent out of bronze, put it on a pole and hold it up, and everyone who looks to that will be safe. Well, that was an image of Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus told them in Nicodemus, remember in John chapter three, the son of man, when the son of man, as Moses lifted up the the serpent in in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up. Here he says the same thing. I've said, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And it indicated that he was going to die a violent death of crucifixion. That was the imagery that he used. Now, if you're thinking with me, it says he's gonna draw all people to himself. Now, we've lived 2,000 years since then. Have you seen everyone come to Jesus? No. We don't see it today either. What's he talking about? Well, basically, human beings have a choice. We neither in this life choose to believe in Jesus as our savior from sin and be reconciled to God and be drawn to him that way, or we can wait till after death when we will be drawn to him in judgment. We're told that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess at that point that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it's a very simple choice Believe in me now or believe in me later. When you believe in me later, it's going to be just prior to damnation. So he is going to draw all people to himself because he went through the crucifixion. The cross was next. And by the way, this was an excruciating, horrific, painful, slow, humiliating death. Probably the cruelest death anyone had ever imagined that anyone really, people have ever really come up with as far as the, when you combine all the components of it. Now, Jesus' prayer is divided into three parts. First, he prays, Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prays for himself. We said in verses one through five, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority all over all flesh to give eternal life to whom all you have given him. Verse three, now catch this. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is eternal life? To know God the Father through God the Son, whom he sent. I was listening to a sermon podcast this week on the way to work one day, and the pastor cited a study. I can't tell you what it was, but it was a recent study of evangelicals 
we would all be considered evangelicals in the uh, evangelical free church. In that survey, it said 54% of evangelicals believe that people could be saved through other religions. That's absolutely astonishing to me that 54% of evangelicals said that. I would certainly hope that given the level of teaching we've received here at this church through Pastor Josh, that we would score much higher, much lower on that than they did. But think about it, if that's you, if you think that maybe sincerity or believing in a supreme being or living a good life is enough to get you to heaven, then you have to assume a couple of things. Number one, in John chapter 14, verse six, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You'd have to include that he was lying there. And you'd have to conclude that he's also lying here at a minimum. Because he says this is eternal life, to know you, Heavenly Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. That's very serious. Now, verse four. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus makes one request for himself in this prayer, only one. And that's that God would restore the glory that he had with God the Father before the world existed from eternity past. He wants that to be restored. And he knew that that would, just that it had been planned. This reminds me of the passage in Hebrews 12, verses one and two. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus requested that in this prayer. It's what we know is the case today, that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, enjoying the glory that was his before the world existed. That was his only prayer, only request in this prayer. So Jesus prays first for himself. Secondly, Jesus prays for the apostles. He prays for the 11 faithful apostles. In verses nine through six through 19, Now, these are the men who'd walked with Jesus for three years. He had poured his life into them. He knows the difficulties that lie ahead for them. He prays for their strength. He prays for their mission to the world. He prays that they would be one and there would be unity among them because without that unity, they would not succeed. But with it, there would be nothing that would hold them back. And in that unity is modeled for them by the unity of God the Father and God the Son. Look at verse six. It says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you and they believe that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, that's the unbelieving world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. 
All yours, all mine are yours, all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now this is prayed of the disciples who are going to, who are going to uh, spectacularly fail him in just a few hours. Think of that. We all know of Peter. He denied that he even knew the man three times and we're told in the scriptures that they all fled and ran away. But Jesus knew that was coming. He knew he would regather them. He knew that in their heart of hearts they were ready, that they had been prepared, that they were going to do the work that he set them to do. And they were all now in agreement with the statement of Peter in Matthew 16, 16, that you, Jesus, are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. When Peter said that, Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven. And that was a critical truth, and they all know that now. So verses six through 10 actually sum up Jesus' earthly ministry. His disciples are ready. He says, and I am no longer in the world, verse 11, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Notice the first phrase, I am no longer in the world. Jesus is so thoroughly committed to the horrors that lie ahead that he's already detached himself from the world and considers himself to be no longer a part of it. He asks that the unity of Father among the 11 faithful apostles be as deep and as complete as the unity between he and God the Father. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and none of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now here is a classic example in scripture of the of the sovereignty of God versus the free will of man, was we know that by this time, Judas Iscariot, is referred to as the son of destruction, has already left. He's already in the process of betraying Jesus to the chief priests and elders. Soon the soldiers will come and arrest him. Now, was this all foreordained in the mind and will of God? We know it was. Jesus says it is right here. We know that it was prophesied in detail in the Old Testament. So yes, it was. However, did, did, did Judas have a choice? Of course he did. He sat there that night and he chose to leave and betray Jesus. Now, does that make sense in our minds? Really, both of those can't be true, but we see that throughout Scripture, that God is sovereign, but somehow faith pulls in there, and that's in the volition of man. Now, some have tried, but it's really difficult to assign any pure motives to Judas, because in in John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus said, have I not chosen you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? He says he spoke of Jesus as carried who would neither betray him. So even then, Jesus knew in the middle, early, probably mid-ministry that Judas, well, he knew, of course, always, but there he declares that Judas would betray him and that he was, in fact, evil in nature and not one with them. Clearly, God looked through time and saw that fore, foresaw that unbelief. Now, verse 13 He says, but I am coming to you, God, 
These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, of course, but that you keep them from the evil one. Just like us, friends, God doesn't take us out of the world. We can't isolate ourselves and live in a nomadic, uh, or nomadic, but in an isolated, and can't live in a cocoon. We're to be in the world, but not a part of the world. To be separate and distinct from it. And that distinction should be visible and, and evident to everyone we come into contact with. Then he goes on here, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For, your sake, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. I want you to note something here. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in, your, in the truth. Your word is truth. Remember when Jesus was before Pilate, he says, what is truth? Well, here's the answer. Your word, God's word is truth. That's what he says right here. You don't believe that, then Jesus made a mistake. Sanctify means to set apart like a sanctuary for animals, or this sometimes returns to a sanctuary place for God's worship. And in context, it means to be set aside for God's use. And that's what he's praying for the, the, the 11 faithful apostles. They were set apart in the truth. The truth is God's word. Now listen, the sanctification of the apostles and us come about in the knowledge of and obedience to the word. And this includes the word that Jesus spoke to his disciples and the words that they later would write to us in the scripture. We are sanctified in the truth. Now, friends, the word of God is generally mocked in our culture now, generally so. Either that or it's just considered irrelevant now. You know, that's a dramatic shift in even a decade. Two decades ago, you would have found that even people who are criminals would have believed the essence of the scripture. They knew that they were doing wrong. That's a dramatic shift in a short time, friends. And I think the reason is now we're scared that people are gonna not like us or will think we're unloving or unkind, but the most unloving thing we can do to someone is deny them the truth that they can be saved through Jesus and reconciled to God, and that's the truth. Please, we need to know and understand God's word. We need to understand it to an extent that we can live it and use it. Now, Jesus has prayed for himself and for his apostles. Last, he prays for us, his church. That's us this morning. That's you and me. Verses 20 through 26. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Here Jesus looks ahead through the millennia and prays for everyone who would come and believe in his word through these thousands of years which have been. You realize Jesus has known every single one of us from eternity past. That's right, every single one of us. If you're here this morning, God knew that you would be here. He knew that I would be here. I love Psalm 139, and it's a great psalm for... uh, if you believe in the sanctity of life in the womb. 
But it also wants to make, it makes another point that I want to share. Verses 13 through 16, just listen. There it says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes form my self-unformed substance. Now here's what I want you to get. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me as yet when there was none of them. You got that? That's amazing. That's how awesome God is. That from eternity past, Every day that you and I have lived and will live until the day we die, he knows, he knew. That's a God we can trust, friends. It's a God we can rely on. One more scripture, Ephesians chapter one, verses three and four along this, that God has known us from eternity past. It says there, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Here's the point again. If you're here today, Jesus knew that you would be here. That's the type of God we serve and he is worthy of our love and adoration and obedience. Now here's the the point that I want to make this morning in verse 21a, that they might be one, that we might be one. What does this mean? In what sense are we to be one? Let's go on in verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Here's what this is saying. All true believers are spiritually united through time, through the salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and in the conviction that the word of God is authoritative. You got that? All believers throughout time are united in this that they are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and in the conviction that the word of God is authoritative. That is to be our unity. Why is this important? Verse 21, so that they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Here it is. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Friends, our unity, our oneness is critical, absolutely critical for the furtherance of the gospel. Jesus is seen in love, Jesus' love for us and our love for one another. Listen, just think about it. What in the world would people want to do with Christianity if we're always fussing and fighting? Remember when I worked way back in Walter Drugs back in Milford, back when we still had a soda fountain back before a lot of you were born? There was a man sat in there at the counter for some time. He was a man who knew the scripture and could really recite it to people, but he was very hateful and mean. Even his voice kind of like sounded like fingernails on a chalkboard. Every day he was coming in there just angry. and It was just awful, even though what he was saying was true. One day I couldn't take it anymore. I went over to him. I said, you know what? I see that you mean well and that your words are well. 
that your words are correct often, but who would want the savior you're trying to sell them? You've got to show people love, show them that, that, they, that you care about them, that they have dignity. I don't know. I don't remember any, any response of his at the time. He probably thought I was nuts, just like I thought he was nuts. But that was a real lesson for me. And it's a lesson for us today. Live in such a way that people would want the Savior you have. That's a real common sense rule of life. Jesus prays on, verse 22. That the glory you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So that in order that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as, I, as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. That's what I want, he says to see my glory that you have given me because you love me for the foundation of the world. You know what? This just tells me that Jesus' love for us is absolutely astonishing. It's, it's boundless. It's unfathomable. You know what? I was so wrong about this the first part of my life. Part of it was my own fault because I didn't study the scripture. Part of it was wrong teaching. But I believed in the early days of my life that God was up there as an angry person just waiting to squash me like a bug when I stepped out of line. I remember thinking that Jesus would get, believing that Jesus would get me to the point of salvation. Then I had to work, 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 not do bad things, do good things, and maybe I could slip underneath the door at the end. That was my hope. That was so wrong. And it has to be an affront to God uh, God deeply, the fact is, this verse tells us, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. God deeply loves us. He, Jesus deeply wants us to believe and to be saved. So much so that in a matter of hours, he's gonna go through the horrors of the cross to make it possible. He wants our Love. He wants our obedience. He wants us to be saved. He wants us to see the glory that was his before the foundation of the world at the right hand of the Father. Now, Jesus cements the point in the last two verses. Oh, in verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you have sent me. I have made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love which, which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now get this again, verse, that the love which you, with, with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Wow, Jesus has, has made his love known throughout the century. He's making it known this morning. The next verse, friends, is really rather chilling to me, and it's a real downer. It's kind of like when you used to have a record player and you're playing and you take that needle right across there. Verse 12, I'm a, excuse me, chapter 18, verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples to the book Kidron, where there was a garden, where he and his disciples entered. Before long, Jesus would be arrested and subjected to the horrors of the cross for you and 
for me. Now, I've known for several weeks that I'd be bringing this message, and I knew that it's clear that Jesus wants us to be united, to be one. It's clear that we will best influence others when we are one in Christ. How do I drive that point home? How do I illustrate this? I thought about it and prayed about it, and then one night in the middle of the night, it came to me. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Now think about it, friends. Everything we've talked about this morning is all about Jesus. That's what our life should be about. Jesus died for me. Jesus lives for me. Jesus intercedes for me. Jesus is everything, all in all. All the scripture either points forward to Jesus or looks back at Jesus or about Jesus' ministry on earth. It's all about Jesus. And when we know that it's all about Jesus, we want to know all about that, and we know that, secondly, because God wrote it all down. You want to influence people for Christ? You want to show your unity and influence the world? Make it all about Jesus. And know that very well that God wrote it all down. It's complete. It's delivered once for all to the saints. We, it's critical that we know it and understand it and have a working knowledge of it. And you know what? If you want to, if you want to influence others for Jesus, if you want to make a difference in the world, it's all about Jesus. You'll know that God wrote it all down. And then, naturally, outflowing all of that, thirdly, all people matter. It doesn't matter who they are, how they look, how they dress, where they came from, what their creed, race, color, their socioeconomic status. It does not matter. They all, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. They all matter to God and therefore should all matter to us because they all bear the image of God and because it's all about Jesus and we know that he was all about salvation of the world and God wrote it all down, that account, they should matter to us as well and we should invite them to follow Jesus with us. You want to influence the world for Christ? You want to make a difference in the world? Know that it's all about Jesus. Know that God wrote it all down. Know that all people matter. And when that happens, we all need friends. We'll have friends because we have the same values, the same core, the same things are important to us. Having friends will be as naturally as breathing when it's all about Jesus in the context of God wrote it all down and all people matter. And then... You want to influence Jesus? You want to influence the world for Jesus? You want to make a difference? It's all about Jesus. God wrote it all down. All people matter. All people have friends, need friends. There can be no sacred cows. Anything that we used at one point that worked that doesn't work now, we got to be willing to get rid of because it's all about Jesus. It's not about that. Whatever it is. Friends, listen, in September of 1986, when we held our first church service of OSC Community Bible Church in the school of the Milford Cafeteria, 66 people were there that morning. And none of this was written down. However, about 10 years ago, when the church first elucidated these core values, I remember sitting in my seat just stunned no one knew what was going on, but I was absolutely quivering because I realized that from the very beginning, this is exactly what we wanted. 
We wanted it to be all about Jesus. We didn't want it to be about this church or that church. We didn't want it to be about this custom, that tradition. We wanted it to all be about Jesus. And we wanted it, we were adamant that God wrote it all down. If it isn't the Bible, we're not gonna do it. We're not gonna preach it. We're not gonna make it important. However, everything in the scripture was going to be vitally important. And all people mattered then. We didn't, it wasn't just the people from our background that mattered, it was everyone. We wanted the world to know about Jesus. And then we wanted, we knew that we all needed friends. We all soon had new friends and new acquaintances. And it was wonderful. Because it was founded, it was from the oneness in Christ. And the last thing we wanted was any more sacred cows. Friends, God knew this from eternity past. He knew I would be here to recall this to your memory today. And Jesus is still calling. If you don't know him as your savior, why not? My goodness, he loves you. He wants you to be with him. He died for you. He arose for you and he will intercede for you. If you don't know Jesus, please come to him today. And if you do and you're not serving him, why not? Do yourself a favor. Make it all about Jesus. Realize God wrote it all down. Realize that all people matter, that all people need friends, and that there are no sacred cows. You will change your life, and we will change the world, our community, for the good. May God bless his word. Let's pray.